0: Listening to Feel Free to Deviate, the podcast about people, their careers, and their relationships with success. My name is Jim Turbert, and I'm the host. This episode features Scott Patrick Weiner, but I usually call him Scott or Ween. He works for an organization called Youth Build that focuses on teaching young people construction skills and facilitates the building of houses in their neighborhoods. It's pretty cool. Like many of the other guests on Feel Free to Deviate, Scott has an art background. He is a photographer-slash-artist with a fancy degree, and he has a long history of continually making art. Yet, like most artists I know, he relies on his job to pay the bills. His story is another take on how to reconcile one's passions with financial needs and obligations. It's also about how sometimes those things collide and result in something that is not just livable, but satisfying. Maybe even deeply satisfying. 2022 is a doozy so far got a sick wife upstairs quarantined kids roughly 40 percent of my daughter's class is positive and i'm not referring to optimism i keep testing negative but i haven't tested for a few days so i'm not really sure but i feel like i must have it by now the other day i was scheduled to meet with a friend of a friend for a networking meeting type of thing and and i casually joked with him about quarantine being the only thing keeping me from making the meeting I logged in to send him a message telling him that I wasn't going to be able to make it, and he had already sent me a message saying exactly the same thing, because COVID is freaking everywhere. But hey, look on the upside. At least I'm unemployed, so I, I won't infect anyone at work. And the kids are homeschooling, so it's all good, right? Seriously, though, I'm I I'm very fatigued at this point, and I don't care one way or the other if I get it or not. I'm not joking, and I do not mean fatigue as a symptom, I mean it more like existential malaise. But uh, yeah, it's going to get better next week. Next week is going to be good. Let's get positive. This is my talk with Scott Patrick Weiner. Scott Weiner, thanks for being on Feel Free to Deviate. I know that you are an accomplished and learned artist. And I also know that you spend a great deal of your time doing something else for money. I'm not actually sure what you're doing right now. But I'm curious what your feelings are about the word success and how they relate to you. How would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Wow. The light shines. Yeah, I think like a lot of it will come out in the conversation. But when I was initially thinking about success and what made me so excited about talking to you about it is that when I think about like, I mean, success, you know, it's like success can be measured in a bunch of different ways. Probably usually the most standard way is by money. Um, that is not something that I am making oodles of. However, I like to think about just happiness. Do I have what I need to do what I want to do? And that, it means a lot for me, especially for someone whose brain sort of wanders all over the place and sometimes does one thing and sometimes does another thing. So like happiness and being able to do the things that I really want to do and also be helping people. I think that is, that's like the big thing. I think about all the things that I've done in my life, and the main thing that is common throughout all of it is that I always try to help people in some way, and that's how I ended up working at YouthBuild, really. I mean, there's a lot more to that story, but um, I work for an organization called YouthBuild USA. It's a support center for YouthBuild sites, which are programs in urban and rural areas that serve young people ages 16 to 24 who have dropped out of high school or they have kids and they're trying to support a family. And the program helps them kind of retake control of their lives through education, through job training and leadership development. And one of the things that made me really excited about it is that the job training bit, and this doesn't, it doesn't really matter if the young people go into this field, which is construction. All of the young people work in construction. It's part of the job training. I I don't know how many actually go into construction. It's not a huge percentage, but there are two things that construction does. I mean, there's a lot of community building that goes on on site with the young people between their educators and also their peers. They are building affordable housing in their own neighborhoods. So the kind of community building that they're doing is both psychological and physical. So they are physically helping to rebuild their communities. And that was... The kind of social change that I wanted to be involved in, it's like helping young people like change change their lives and benefit their communities, so I don't work on the ground or anything. I work with the program directors and their staff. I basically work in like the mem- membership arc, bring programs in, support them while they're part of what we call the affiliated network. When a program decides to leave, shepherd them, you know shepherd them as they make that decision
0: what What, what, do, you, what do you mean by program i'm i'm sorry i don't really I don't really get that part.
1: Youth Build USA is an international organization, and I work on the domestic side. On the domestic side, there is an affiliated network of around 150 programs, because that number can fluctuate.
0: Oh, without throughout the country, in different cities or whatever.
1: Yeah, and serve. um, And they serve. They serve young people, and we use the term opportunity youth. We choose that terminology because we want to draw attention to their potential. Not the way that society has labeled them as, say, like disenfranchised or at risk. We look at what is possible and we refer to all young people as opportunity youth so that they're not seen through the lens of their struggle, but through the lens of their potential.
0: Right on. Seem to have that pitch down because I, I would imagine that a lot of people are like, so what is this place? Because I knew that it was something like that, but I, I don't think I ever heard the, the whole explanation before.
1: Right around the time that I started, they established a communications team, and that communications team has done a really good job over the past few years of getting us to really understand the messaging. In America, a lot of youth build programs are supported by the Department of Labor. I forget the year, but the Youth Build Department of Labor grant came about in the Bush II era. It has seen, except for the, uh, in 2009, it has seen increases to its appropriation every year. So it is one of those places where the two sides of the American body politic can actually agree on something. So it continues to get funded. And, you know, programs apply every year. And some, you know, a bunch of programs in the United States get, depending on how they're applying, it's either one to one and a half million dollars to support a youth bill program for three years. There's programs who have had the grant multiple times.
0: That doesn't seem like a lot.
1: It's for three years. So what it does is it supports active programming for two years and a follow-up year.
0: No, that's what I mean. I mean, like like that amount of money seems rather low for what you're doing.
1: Yeah, that's – I've actually never – I haven't thought about that because I've only ever known it to be about that. Even programs who don't have DOL funding, we recommend they have at least $500,000 in the bank per year. And that's like, you know, it's, it's got, you've got case managers, you've got directors, you've got construction trainers, you've got educators, you've got the leadership people. A lot of times youth build programs, site staff have multiple roles. Why, why did I bring all that up?
0: I derailed you by saying that I thought it seemed like a small amount of money.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Because another, one of the other things that it supports is stipends. Like youth build participants actually get paid to be there. Which is great. And they get fed at least, I think they get fed one meal a day. And then they have other kinds of service projects that help feed them and other program participants and even members of the community meals. Like there's a lot of youth build programs who also do outreach to the homeless population and do a lot of service to the community that way by uh, helping to feed homeless people and also like homeless young people. And in fact, a lot of homeless young people go to youth build programs. And there are youth build programs that have like dorms. There's a, a, like a couple of them. One of them is in California. I believe it's in Salinas. It's a, it's a good place if the young people are willing to make the commitment. There is like, you know, a, kind of a selection in our recruitment process. I've seen nothing but good things come out of it.
0: It sounds like a pretty great job to have.
1: It's administration. Make no mistake about it. But still,
0: whatever you're involved, you're involved with an organization that's at least attempting to do something good. And it sounds like you're doing more than attempt it. At the very least, you're teaching kids how to fix things in their own houses in the future. You know, like (laughs) that, that is a priceless skill. As someone who owns a house, I can tell you that it is very good to know how to use tools.
1: Yep. I learned something new about fixing the house every day.
0: Every single day. I mean, I've known you since, what, the late 90s. Jeez.
1: Yeah, it would have been... 19, I can locate it. Fall 1998. So check it out, right? I'll paint you a picture. Jim walks through the door of Virginia Beans. Photo class. Late.
0: No, was I late?
1: <laughs> you were late. And you said... And it was, it was some kind of car trouble. And you said, I'm sorry I'm late. I had, like, I had this car trouble. I'm not trying to make excuses. I really wanted to be here. And I'm not trying to be a sycophant. I'm glad to be here and I'm sorry I'm late. And Virginia said something like, you look like you listened to Tom Waits.
0: <laughs> I don't remember that.
1: And I laughed. And then I didn't meet you until you introduced yourself to me in the dark room, which was totally caught me by surprise. I remember like a young attitude ridden, angsty Scott Wiener was like,
0: who is this
1: guy? Who does he think he is introducing himself to me and being nice?
0: <laughs> I'm a nice guy. What can I say? One of my, I mean, I remember going into class and seeing you guys and I was like, who are these guys? Cause you were, you were, you were hanging out with Eric a lot at the time, but one of my earliest memories, not my earliest, but one of my earliest memories of you, we were in the dark room. You were probably sleeving negatives or something. And I was asking you why you had a pager. I was like, so why do you have a pager? And you just looked at me and said, bitches. (laughs) 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 Bitches.
1: (laughs) Dude, I remember that now. Um, I am a little embarrassed, but I also know who I was at that time. And that response makes perfect sense.
0: If you don't want me to, I won't include that. I mean, you have
1: to include, if you do, you got to include an explanation. I listen to hip hop and I make jokes. (laughs) And I thought those two things would go really well together in that moment. For the listening audience, I have since grown up. I, when people ask me why I have a cell phone, I do not use that term, nor do I refer to all of the women who call me.
0: That's a good policy. I use my cell phone solely for responsible family-related activities.
1: That's right. The highest rating that we get, as far as communication is concerned, on my cell phone is PG.
0: Nice. The point was that that's a great job to have, but I'm guessing, based on knowing you since the late 90s, that it wasn't your dream to be working for this company in an administrative capacity. I assume... I know that there were some art ambitions involved in, in your life, and I, I'm not sure exactly how to start with this, but I know that you grew up in an army family. Air Force. Air Force, sorry. How did you become the photo kid? Growing
1: up in the military, we, mo- we moved around a lot, and it seemed like it, from like 1977, that's when I was born, to 1990, we moved something like five times. And it seemed like as I got older, every time I started to establish my own relationships, you know, with friends and things like that, we would move. And that was caustic. Like it was a shock every time. So it's like I would always have to make new friends and establish new relationships. And I think the hardest one was in 1990 when we moved from Germany to Massachusetts. How old were you? I was 13.
0: Yeah, that's a tough one.
1: Yeah, so it's like I had this like friend group at Ramstein in Germany, the Air Force base, and we moved to Hanscom, and like I had this really tight knit friend group, and I like got here. We moved into some town in Massachusetts. I had to start the whole your last name's Wiener thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You ride a skateboard. Was that not cool in nineteen ninety? Skateboarding was the farthest thing from cool for real. That you can imagine. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it enjoyed some popularity in the 80s, and then towards the end of the 80s, it dissipated. And then it was not cool again until probably about 1996. My entire high school career, I was a skateboarder. My last name was Wiener, whose dad was ranked major. Ha <laughs> And in addition to that, like, we lived on an Air Force base, and on Hanscom, they put your name and your rank on your house. My house said Major Wiener. I can remember times kids walking by and laughing as I pretended to do my homework. You know, I lived a pretty marginalized existence. We ended up moving on to Hanscom, and then I went to high school in Bedford, and we were also the base kids, which was also not cool. The Bedford contingency was not overly welcoming, although somewhat welcoming, Welcoming. And it also might have just been me. Like I had this terrible attitude, like I hated everything and like I wore sh- shirts that said everything sucks on it because I felt like it did because I was in high school. But I will say this, I look back on those years, even the years that we shared together, like those formative years mm-hmm. with the rosiest colored glasses. Like I appreciate every experience that yeah, I had of back course. then. Yeah, it was kind of awesome. So you're asking about photography.
0: Well, I was just wondering, because I know that you went on to art school, but like as someone who's in, in a military family, I'm just curious how it came to pass that you became the photo guy.
1: Because I kept leaving places and because I kept romanticizing like the past time that I didn't have access to anymore. When I discovered photography and that I could do it on my own, I was like, here is a way that I can preserve these times that won't be around forever. So that was, I think, junior year of high school, and I just kind of fell in love with it. And also, you know, we grew up in the analog days, and I know that some schools still do it, but it's far more rarefied than it used to be. I loved the process. I was like, I, may, I took this thing, I put it in a can, shook it around for a while, and then there were these negatives that were the opposite of what I was going to see when I made a print out of it. And then I made prints. There was all of this magic happening that I didn't understand.
0: Oh, yeah. Darkroom magic is the best. It's the best.
1: I still like work in an analog way, but all of my prints are scanned and inkjet now. But if I, whenever I have an opportunity to like jump into a darkroom, I like, I totally take it. So that's, a, that's how I got to photography. And I, I knew that even back then. It's not like something I looked back at and realized. It was really tangible to me that I felt like I was missing something because I'd moved so many times. And that here was this thing that could help me hold on to it.
0: So you thought about it in terms of projects then?
1: Not projects, more in just preserving the time that I was spending with people or the time that I was spending anywhere. Like, you know, some kind of abstract record out of it.
0: I suppose any type of family photos are that. But I just don't know that the intention is the same. It th- sounds like a very specific intention.
1: Yeah. And I wasn't like, I wasn't super intentional about that in high school. I think that came, that definitely came later with mass art the idea that we can maintain a relationship to the past through an inanimate object that sort of looks like the time was always really appealing to me.
0: You eventually decided that you wanted to go to school for this. So you, so you did. What was the process there? I'm, I'm asking because I, I sort of know, I know that you went to community college and then you applied to MassArp. I'm just wondering how that came about. Where, where did you get the idea? Like, I want to go to school for this because this is the thing that I want to do.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I was a terrible high school student. I barely graduated. I probably shouldn't have graduated. I had no direction, no direction at all. Um, except for that. I knew that I kind of liked art because I could scrape low B's out of it. After high school, I worked in a sub shop for a, s- a semester, helping people. <laughs> yes. Helping people. <laughs> and I realized that the dream of being out of high school that and that dream is hanging out with your friends all the time <laughs> was not, True, because your friends also have jobs and they, or, or they are in school. So after that semester, like I petitioned my parents, I was like, I think I want to go to school. I uh, enrolled in Middlesex Community College. It's in Bedford. So right in, right next to Hanscom.
0: This is all, this is all outside of Boston, by the way, for people listening. I, he he said before Hanscom, if you're from the Boston area, you know what that is. It's, it's an Air Force base outside of Boston.
1: Yeah, so basically, out of sheer boredom, I, w- I went to school. I didn't know what to do, but I wanted to be around people, so I went to school and, you know, did all the requisite stuff. I got on the Dean's List, which was super weird for my parents. The Ween's List? No. <laughs> oh, snap. <laughs> I wish, I wish there was such a thing. And there probably is for that band. Um <laughs> No, I got on the dean's list, and I was still doing photo classes, and I realized that I really liked it, and I was like, this is what I want to do with my life. And at that point, it's like, I mean, I don't know what guidance counselors are like these days, but when I was a kid, it like, and in my particular context, guidance counselors were useless. Like, My guidance counselor was more interested in talking to me about why I was listening to the cure than helping me figure out what my next steps in life were going to be.
0: What does the cure have to do with it? I don't understand. I'd
1: like, uh, I like—I walked into a guidance counselor meeting one time and I was, I was listening to them on my, my yellow Sony Sport Walkman. Oh
0: my God, <laughs> I always wanted one of those. They're,
1: they were awesome. And he just asked me what I was listening to and I, it was like the new cure tape. I don't know. I showed it to him and he was like, why do you like these lyrics? And it's like, like super depressing. I was like, aren't you supposed to help me figure out what I want to do with my life? Who do you care? Anyway, the... um...
0: Which, which, I'm sorry, but we need to clarify which, which Cure album it was. It was Wish. Okay.
1: (laughs) Um, So that was the new Cure album at the time. I don't think they released another one until after I graduated high school. The song was cut. It was like one of the more upbeat songs. I don't remember what the lyrics were about, but it was terribly depressing. You know, sad stuff about like not having girlfriends or like people dying.
0: You know, things that we can all relate to. Yeah,
1: it's generally what The Cure is about, or at least when they were good.
0: I don't know what they're about now.
1: I don't know either. Um, So yeah, I I went to school, kept doing photography. I was like, this is what I want to do with little to no direction. And I wanted to go to Mass Art because my friend Jeff... White, who you also know, went to MassArt.
0: Oh, so he was the inspiration for that. It wasn't some other push to go to MassArt.
1: Right. I mean, my parents were happy that I was even interested in going to college to begin with. They didn't care where I went. And Jeff was like, oh, Mass Art's fun. I like it. And I only applied to that one school. I was not good at this.
0: Can we call Jeff Diggles from now on?
1: Uh, we can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'll make sure I link him to the podcast so he can hear it. <laughs> All right, good. Um. G-diggy diggles, um, you know, it was really hype in mass art. And I was like, OK, I'm going to apply there. Clearly, that's where I'm going to go. It was competitive back then. It's competitive now. Luckily, I got in. That's how I got there. And then I just kind of followed that, you know, learned how to make pictures using other mediums, got better at printing, learned how to put projects together to kind of thematize things, learned a lot about history. Special shout out to Joanne Lukic. It was awesome. I had a great time. I think my favorite thing about my time there was the people that I spent the time there
0: with. Well, I mean, you said you wanted to hang out with all your friends, so you just got some new friends and started hanging out with them and hanging out with the old ones. I mean, like I, I, mean, I know Diggles now. I'm assuming he does not want to be called Diggles.
1: <laughs> I don't even know that he cares. I still talk to Jeff to this day. He's in Arlington. He's got twins. He's like in the thick of the struggle. But yeah, you know, he makes it work. So that was it. And then I was like, you know, I got out of school. I got some job at a design studio. September 11th happened. Got laid off. Then landed a job with a lab. And then...
0: What was the design studio?
1: I think it was called Dyad. Jeff got me that job. I was working w- just like splicing images together. And like, I was using this like giant scan back camera that was like a giant four by five thing. I
0: do remember it. Cause I remember you talking about the stupid camera, right?
1: Yep. Obviously the Canon 6D can outdo that camera now, but uh, yeah, it was interesting. It just didn't last very long cause it was a startup. And then like this great tragedy happened. And you know, of course with all great tragedies, especially when they're domestic, it affects the economy and this was a startup at a bad time. You know, I was unemployed for a while. I worked at, like, some hole-in-the-wall photo place for a short time. I worked at a skate shop for a short time. And then a friend of mine got me a job at Spectrum. And actually, she teaches in Florida now, Jayanti Siler, She was awesome. She's still awesome.
0: I don't, I don't even know who that is.
1: Yeah, she was... She went to RISD. I met her somehow. In Boston? Yeah, I think I was in some, like... Show at the Copley Society, and I like.
0: Oh, she was a part of that scene. Okay, she
1: wasn't though. Like her friend was, but then she introduced me to Jayanti, and I forget what her friend's name was. But she was also very cool. But after undergrad the art school, art schools have this penchant for reproducing themselves, right? So it's like the the track. If you dial into like the whole art thing, is like go to art school work for a little bit or maybe just go directly to art graduate school or maybe it was just me and I was had I like just took instruction and didn't know any other way I was just like oh this is the way it's got to be this is what I'm going to do I finished undergrad art school I'll work for a little bit and go to art graduate school
0: so that was the goal that 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 was a goal yeah why just because you did you feel like you had to or what did you think was going to happen
1: I just thought it was the next logical step and that's what the impression that I got I don't know that anyone actually said this to me but school's you know, like art schools in particular are like, you know, if you want to be an artist, the next step is graduate school. and that's like either implied or explicit. I don't remember if anyone ever actually said that to me, but i felt I felt like it was what I was supposed to do.
0: It was like an expectation because you kind of breezed over the the mass art thing though, but you you thrived there. You were one of the the stars of the department or whatever. maybe you felt that or maybe there was actual pressure. I don't know, but I mean, it could have also just been ego. It could have been i mean, it could have been anything. I'm just I was just curious if you were aware of of did you have a trajectory in mind when you decided to go to grad school cuz it's not a it's no joke deciding to do that it's a significant cost in many ways
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so let's let's dial back into like the mass art day. So I was I was aware that teachers thought that I had some kind of talent and they were very encouraging. And that was cool. I felt like that encouragement there was different levels of that encouragement coming from different places, depending on what kind of work I was making. And this is like part of my deal. Like I have trouble, (laughs) trouble. I mean, I guess we'll just go with that. I have I have trouble kind of focusing on a single idea. I like to do multiple things. And there was part of my time at MassArt that I was making like interiors and I was photographing ceilings and they were all clinical. And, you know, it was like describing, you know, the what exists above us. And that there was a certain contingency in the department that was super excited about that. And then I think in the second half of junior year, I was like, you know, I just want to make I want to try making pictures of people. Someone, someone at some point said I wasn't good at it. And I was like, "Nah." no. I could be if I wanted to. So I like tried that out and I did that for like a year and a half. And I really, I really enjoyed that. All this to say is that the champions in the department did shift, you know, from one, you know, the, you know, the landscapers to the portraiters. I think that I was encouraged to do it. And then I sort of imposed, I imposed that demand on myself. To be honest, dude, I had no idea like what it meant to be an artist. When I got to graduate school and learned what it meant to be an artist, going out, like talking to people, like trying to get as many shows as you can, like all that stuff. Like, I was like, oh, this is what this is.
0: All right. I want to talk about that afterwards, but you describe yourself as having lack of focus. And I understand why you say that because sometimes you're hard to reel in. You're a little scatterbrained, but Wrangle
1: is the word you used. Sorry, wrangle,
0: <laughs> wrangle, <laughs> reel <you> in <laughs> like a catfish. <laughs> but any success that you have or have had in your life, I think, comes from your ability to focus. Now, maybe you have to try extra hard to focus. But when you think about what you were saying before, someone <laughs> someone saying that the picture wasn't good or whatever, or the work wasn't good, and then you're like, well, I can make it good. That's what I'm talking about right there. That focus. There are people who, whether they're musicians or artists, or I would imagine writers as well, they just want, they just want to do it and they want it to work, succeed, whatever. They want, it to, they want it to work and they want it to be good and they want it to be re- well received because, you know, if you didn't care what other people thought, then you would never show anybody your, your work. And I can say this, you you're talking about the ceilings thing i was away when you were doing that and i remember you you sent me a package of stuff you were working and i was like what the hell is this and then when we got back we did that show together and they were awesome they looked they were amazing the type of artist that you are i feel is that you find something that you like whether it's an influence or a style or an idea and then you grab it and at first maybe it's not that good but you don't let go. I am persistent, if nothing else. <laughs> exactly. That's what I mean. So like, you know, when you start doing the ceilings, I can understand why people might be like, why the hell are you taking pictures of ceilings? But that show that we did, it was my first show. I don't know if it was your first show. Probably. Probably. Anyway, it was really good. The 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 way you decided to show them, the format, everything about it, the, the way the colors were arranged, the abstract nature of it all. But then you started doing... I don't know if you jumped right to the black and white stuff, but later on at Mass Start, you were doing something completely different. And again, maybe, it, maybe it's because you were working as a TA in Nick's class or whatever, but you started doing all these, these sensitive portrait things and, you know, eh, maybe it was okay. Maybe it was good, but then they got really good. You're saying that you think focus is a problem, but I, I don't see it as a problem. I see it as you seeing it as a problem and trying to fix it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think that that's fair. I think later on, I'd say after 2010, I was able to realize that I can make different kinds of work and structure them thematically. And then they can all kind of like different projects or different series can fit together so long as they exist under the same theme. And it kind of gave me permission to do a bunch of different stuff. Like there's this this landscape acquisition project that I was doing for a little bit. Um, It was all about drone technology and, and, and aerial surveillance and things like that. And I had, there's like all of these different kinds of ways that I was looking at that, but they all had their own little series to, to be a part of. And when they kind of came together, there was like a series of digital images that I pulled off the, off the internet and badly erased the drone out of and then there was these video exports that were aerial surveillance shots that i rephotographed in with 3200 speed black and white and printed them so they look like actual surveillance pictures but they were pulled from videos trying to think there were these like plastic drones that like i photographed on sky colored background and there's videos that go along with it there's a picture of my dad in there somewhere because he was an air weapons controller but when they at least in my mind when they came together they kind of serviced a larger theme I mean, we're skipping a lot and we can always come back, but that kind of brings us to what I'm doing now. Because no matter what, like, I try to figure out a way that I can continue making artwork, even though, like... I work at an organization that it's, a, and I serve in an, in an administrative capacity, I still try to find ways to keep making stuff. And now when the pandemic started, actually, no, this started way before that, like two years before when I first started working at YouthBuild, I stumbled into all of my old pictures. I'm talking like going back to the first roles I exposed in high school and I started scanning them. And I started looking at them again and thinking about the human relationship to time uh, through photography. And I've been building this archive over, I mean, at least since 2018. There's also new pictures that I'm integrating into it. I'm collaborating with a writer named Teresa Fazio. She is a known writer who writes about gender in the military. It's what she's known for. We met skateboarding. And I interviewed her for this documentary project that I'm sort of working on, this video documentary project about why people skate when they even like for people who stick with skateboarding, why they continue to do it into and beyond middle age. And we became friends and we have been working together to kind of create a a book out of my images and her relationship to ideas about time, gender and skateboarding. And basically, she's get, got like free reign to write aphoristically into this book to accompany these images. So that's kind of where I am now. And it services this exact thing that you're talking about. While some, a lot of the pictures, they're coming from different times, and they're sort of being pushed together to exist in the same space. Or we are, I guess, together putting an umbrella over it that thematizes it as really the main idea is like a human relationship to time. And what's really exciting to me And why I wanted to work with her is that it's me taking pictures and especially the stuff with skateboarding in it is a lot of guys. And she is super excited about writing her experience into that. She has a completely different relationship to skateboarding um, than I do, right? It is not male-centric. And what's exciting to her is to be able to bring her perspective to something that even to this day, while it's better than it was twenty years ago, is still f- a fair, fairly male-centric activity.
0: All right, that's cool. It sounds like sounds like a pretty solid project.
1: I know you wanted to come back to this, and I think this this will bring us right back to uh, graduate school and like what I learned. It like what I learned that it meant to be an artist for me, and I was probably misinformed.
0: I want to go back to the drone project for, for one second. And then we can ease into this being a real artist thing, whatever being a real artist thing is. I remember I hadn't seen you for a really long time and I went over to your house and you were like super jazzed up about showing me these things and you just kept whipping things out and putting them on the table and explaining how you're going to do this and explaining how you're going to display it. And maybe at some point you even sent me some pictures of displays. It was cool. It was very cool. And I had seen other projects that were related to other things at the time. And I thought that your project was actually better. Yet these other plate things were in museums or in, in magazines and stuff. And I'm just wondering, as someone who is very educated and you did the stuff you're supposed to do, how does that make you feel? Is, I'm not asking you to say, I'm super sad because I'm not a famous artist, but I'm just wondering, you make this great project, is not getting any recognition for it okay? Does that make you feel unsuccessful? Does that make you feel successful? The project was great. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that the project was great. Thanks. I really liked it. And I wish I could have seen it in an exhibition space because it would have been awesome. But what were your expectations? What are your expectations? So back
1: then, the expectation was to show it. I think at some point I harbored these delusions that, you know, showing at MoMA would be like the top of the egg pile or something like that.
0: That would be pretty awesome.
1: Yeah, that would be the thing. That would be the measure of success. But looking back on it now, I was able to show the work. I was happy about where I showed it. I came to realize at some point that there's a lot of people out there in the world trying to be artists.
0: There really are. There's
1: a lot of competition around it. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I enjoyed the least about being an artist was going out and networking to make the exhibitions happen. I did not enjoy that at all. I did it. I was successful to some degree or another in terms of if we measure success as exhibiting semi-frequently, but I did not. I'm going to say this one way and then I'm probably going to revise because the way that it exists in my head is like this. Being an artist required me to go out and talk to a bunch of people who I didn't really care about talking to and to sell myself to them. And I didn't want to do that either. Like I wasn't comfortable like marketing myself in that way. And I didn't want to pander to people whose opinions I didn't care about. And even though I did it for a long time, because that was an expectation of being an artist in the world, I came to this realization. I was like, I'm just not going to do this anymore. Like, I don't want to do it. I really like making art. Do I need to be showing it at the hot gallery or the museum to be an artist? And the answer where I settled was no. I still enjoy making artwork. I still enjoy thinking about it. I still enjoy talking about it. I feel a bit freer to make whatever I want. That's really good. Yeah, I, like, impose this on myself, though. It's like, I thought, in my my brain, I was like, I have to make a certain kind of work to be successful as a contemporary artist. And it was, like, steeped in the academy, and it was theoretically driven, it was aesthetically driven, it had all of these references and citations and footnotes, and... At one point, I just realized that like that wasn't really what I wanted to do. I just wanted to make work that, I don't know, was meaningful to me and is potentially meaningful for other people without the burden of all of the academic stuff. I really like watching movies that make me, you know, produce tinglys in me. I like feelings. I want to make artwork that produces tinglys and feelings and butterflies and things like that. And that's what I've been doing probably since I left teaching. There was a, definitely like an adjustment period where I was like, kind of like extracting my brain out of that place. And it's like, whatever, like I love all that theory stuff. I love talking about it. I know you do. It also frames my worldview, but it's not necessary for someone to look and, and enjoy and experience an artwork. And oftentimes, for me anyway, I find it to be a burden and I don't want to burden people with artwork.
0: I really like to hear you say that. That's so nice. That's so nice. I know. Plus, I have a kid, so I get to photograph her. And that's like, that's like
1: full circle, man. I was photographing those kids back at uh, Mass Art in my neighborhood, remember?
0: I do. I do. It was great.
1: And then after that, it was like I was photographing people who were friends of mine. You're in some of them, by the way. You will see those soon. They're by 10s It's not just the pictures that I took of you for the wedding.
0: I have others. Scott took pictures at my wedding, by the way.
1: Yes. One of them I really like, the one with the strawberry um scott also paid to have them imported back to the states (laughs) that's true that's true i was like dude do you still have those i mean that's another thing like i'm super i'm like i'm super sentimental like i want to like hold on to things and look at them later and have have like a you know a current experience of some feeling that i might have had in the past even though i know i'll never be able to actually have that feeling but like i like trying to reproduce it it's fun I will say this about graduate school. This is one thing I think is worth saying. All right, say it. I would never take the experience back. It was super fun. I learned a lot. That was awesome. And then like, you know, I went, you know, and taught for a long time and I went out and did the, you know, the kind of like working artist thing where it's like, you know, you're trying to get shows and all that stuff. And it was Parts of it were great, but I loved, I did enjoy graduate school. I do not enjoy the bill that I will be paying for for the rest of my life. I did not do this intelligently. I wish someone would have said, go to graduate school for free. There are programs out there where you can go for free. I was like, no, I'm going to shoot for the star. Yeah, I'm going to go to the Art Institute of Chicago, and I'm going to pay a ridiculous amount of money to do that. And I'm going to do it all through loans, public and private. And it's going to be, it's going to be the best decision I ever made. And that is probably 51% true. The other 49% belongs to the bill that shows up on my doorstep every month.
0: You undoubtedly got a great education and you did learn a lot. And I know that you're fully ensconced in it. I I mean, I know a lot of people who went to graduate school and I feel like the fresh grads are like all amped up like grad school. I love grad school. Oh, I learned so much and it's so good. And I want to tell everybody. And then like they eventually get to where you are now, which I'm really happy to hear how you think about it now. I do wish that that your drone project got a, a, a more attention because I, I really think it was good and and it is a balance of all those things you were talking about it had all the theory it had all the the topical uh the topical topics <laughs> and it had the aesthetics and it was also a multi-pronged attack there were there were you know video it was it was it was a very, it was a very good project and I feel like it should have gotten more attention than it did. And I suppose there's still time that that could happen. It just, it's just not as topical right now.
1: Yeah. At one point somebody, there was an, God, I feel so bad because, um, shoot, maybe at some point I'll go up and grab it. But, uh, somebody wrote about the work in a book about drone art.
0: Where did they see it? How did, how did they, how did they see it? Did you send it to them? Like, how did it,
1: no, they, it, was a, it, w- it was a cold contact. Thomas Stubblefield is the guy's name. He teaches at UMass Dartmouth. He's a...
0: I know someone who teaches at UMass Dartmouth. Sarah Malakoff. Maybe, maybe I'll have her on the show sometime. Would you say, what's her name? Sarah Malikoff.
1: Oh, she's awesome. Her work is so good. I know. I'm a huge fan. I did not know she taught there. That is cool. She does.
0: Um, yeah. No, no, UMass Dartmouth. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, UMass Dartmouth. Yeah, that, I think that's where she teaches.
1: So cool. So he reached out to me cold and asked me about this work and if I'd be interested in including it in this book he was writing about drone art. The subtitle is Everywhere, War as Medium. So that was the um, the last place that I showed the work. I was really happy about that. And the reason why is like, first of all, his writing about it was really good. And second of all, having it published in a book makes it permanent in a way that sometimes exhibitions aren't. I was so delighted that he even asked, and I was like, I'm happy to provide whatever you need. I'm really excited to do this. I didn't, like, I didn't ask for any licensing fees or anything like that. I was like, I don't care. Like, I just, I'm really excited to be included in this book. And of course, you know, he writes about Trevor Paglin in the book as well, which is a super cool company. I love Trevor, Trevor Paglin's work. I showed with him in New York in a group show at one point that was that was cool. If someone becomes interested in, in it again, I would show it again, but I'm I'm in a different I'm in a different place right now. This goes all the way back to like military stuff, right? I mean, the drone stuff is super connected to the military, but the work that I'm making now is it's about, you know, I said it before, but it's worth mentioning again, it's about how humans relate to time through photography and that's a portrait project to me. I'm super psyched to be back looking at people again. And I'm like, I'm using the four by five again. I use digital. I use the digital camera as well. I'm really happy making that work because I think behind all of my work is memory and photography. That is the thing that has been the constant in all of my work. It's been a concept, not a style. The results that I get when I make pictures of people makes me the happiest. The thing I think that's super exciting to, to me about Working this way again is that it's like, you know, you shoot two rolls or you shoot like, you know, 72 pictures or you shoot like 20 sheets. There's this moment where you get to like swim in all of the pictures you just made and figure out which ones are. And this is like I put this in quotes. Good. And you get to do that fun thing. You know what I mean? And it's like it's like full flare happening again right now. And I I really I really like it. Art's been with me for a long time. But the thing that's been with me the longest, and this is why I'm happy that finally, at 44 years old, almost 45, I have been able to bring together the two things that have been with me the longest. Um, And the thing that's been with me the longest, like longer than anything, is skateboarding. I mean, skateboarding is important for like a million different reasons. But for me, being a short kid whose last name was Wiener, who was doing a thing that nobody was doing and people kind of scoffed at back in the early 90s. It gave me a home. That activity gave me a place to belong. Additionally, the added bonus of that is the sort of the struggle between going to do a trick and trying to land that trick and ride away. There's always this looming possibility of falling and hurting yourself really badly. The danger is part of what I love about it.
0: Yeah, but you're old now, dude. No, I know. Just just for the record, I'd like to interject. I have a couple, fr- a couple old guy friends, like my age, your age, that are skating and regularly post skating things on the internet. None of you are posting just, I'm skating. You're like on ramps, in bowls. I look at that and I'm like, holy crap. At the very least, he's going to fall and break his tailbone. Worst case scenario, he breaks both arms or two wrists or something. It scares the crap out of me.
1: Yes, I, I understand. For people who have been doing it for a really long time, we are confident in our abilities until our abilities tell us we shouldn't be confident in that anymore. I mean, I'm a pretty active person, and I only say this to kind of contextualize. My most recent injury was quadricep tendonitis in both knees. Oh, in the knees. So I've been in physical therapy for that, and I haven't been able to skate. I haven't skated since the beginning of November because I want them to get better.
0: Yeah. That's a tough one.
1: Even though my knees hate me, I'm not done with them yet. Yeah, so skateboarding obviously doesn't look like it did when I was like 360 flipping, you know, six sets in Burlington, Massachusetts or, Bo- or Boston or doing uh, 180 back foot flips off the second stair of Copley Fountain. I had to shout out Boston a little bit. So anyway, it's like, I mean, there's this thing that for people who stick with skating, they keep doing it for a really long time. And I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what it is. There's some kind of satisfaction in it that I don't get from anything else. And to bring this all the way for full circle, finally, after all these years, it's a part of both my activity life, um, I do it with my friends, I do it with my daughter, um, I have a three foot by 12 foot wide mini ramp in my backyard, finally, childhood dream come true, I made it happen. Do you know how I made it happen? You built it? Yes, but how did I afford it?
0: <laughs> oh, uh, by working at
1: Youth USA or whatever the hell it's called? No. I mean, maybe indirectly, but I sold like 60 records and that got me to like the 30, I think it was like $3,200 I needed okay. to put this thing in my backyard. Because when I, I had to do like this long lobbying campaign to get it with Alicia. She was like, she was super reticent about it in the beginning. And I was like, no, come on. We, I really need to do this. It's like, I've, I always wanted to have a, a like a, a half pipe in my backyard and like, here's an opportunity to do it. And she finally was like, fine okay, it's not going to be here forever. Like you said that, that's good. It's wood. It's not, it's just not going to last forever.
0: Well, it will be there forever if you take care of it.
1: Maybe. (laughs) It's at least going to be there for like, you know, three to five years if I take care of it. Her other condition was you can't pay for it using our money. So I went through my records and pulled out probably like the, not all of the most valuable records, but most of them and just sold them.
0: Like what? What were the most valuable records?
1: (sighs) One of the most valuable records I have is the Robert Ludwig cut of um, Led Zeppelin II. And you sold it? No, I did not sell that one. No. Like, that one, I don't... An old friend of mine gave that to me. She found it at a yard sale for a dollar.
0: I didn't know you were a Zeppelin guy.
1: I'm, like, in and out with Zeppelin. There are, like, certain songs and albums that I like, but I'm not, like, obsessed with them. I have, like, a small collection of Led Zeppelin, which is just single copies of it: Led Zeppelin 1 through 4 and Presence. And the reason why Presence is in there is because that was the album that got me into them. I refused to listen to them in high school and th- even beyond that because Led Zeppelin was so strongly associated with all the football players he used to pick on me that I couldn't listen to it.
0: Yeah. No, well, it's, I'm glad that you got over it because it is associated with that. And I understand wanting to remove yourself from that situation, but they are, they're a pretty great band.
1: I had to get over all the hate in my heart. Oh, I had these like Mobile Fidelity Sound Lab Pixies records that were actually duplicates. That label, MoFi, like as soon as those things go out of print, they're super expensive.
0: What are what are, are they?
1: It's an all analog audio file, whatever that means, pressing of all of the Pixies records, like Surfer Rosa, Doolittle, Bossa Nova, Trompe Lamond. and I sold them all. Not a single one sold for under a hundred, and I think the most expensive one I sold for two fifty, and that was Doolittle because Doolittle is like
0: yeah that's the one that's the most popular one
1: it's not just i mean for me it's like that's the album that i came to the pixies with so they, that album will never be outdone by any pixies record for this listener although i appreciate and love all of their music
0: yeah sure i mean everyone's got their favorite
1: all of the stuff that they did in the first iteration of the pixies i haven't listened to a lot of what they've done lately
0: i've listened to a couple it's fine you can it's, it's fine
1: I'm sure, uh, you know, it's, it's cool. I'm glad that those, I'm glad that they're still around making music. Like, I appreciate that. Me too. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter, like, if I like it or not. They're still out there doing it, and that's awesome. What else? Do we, do you want to hear more expensive records? I just want to, I just want to know what you sold to get the ramp. Uh, there was this acoustic hits record that the Cranberries put out a few years ago. S- like, a few years ago. I'm talking, like, maybe 2017 or something. Isn't she, isn't she dead? She did die. Um, and sh- so that record has never seen a repress and it came out and I was like, oh, that's a good way to get like the cranberry songs that I like in one place because all the other, the records that I grew up on, like, you know, the, the black cover and the white cover. Um,
0: I, I don't know. Cause I'm not a cranberries fan, but that's okay. okay. So
1: that's the two, the two albums are everyone else is doing it. So why can't we, and no need to argue. So those two hadn't seen represses yet. So I was like, oh, this is a way that I can have, you know, my, cr- some cranberries on vinyl and that was fine. That record I sold for two hundred and fifty dollars. Jesus Christ! Last year, the Cranberries. Right? Yes, that Matt was Led Zeppelin. Four, four <laughs> years after it was produced. Maybe, maybe it was twenty eighteen. Maybe it was three years, three or four years after it was produced. So, yeah, it's crazy. Can,
0: can I, can I just say that when I, when I think of the Cranberries, all I think of is silly teenage boys saying, "Do you have to smell my finger?" <laughs> So
1: that is awesome. Now I will think about that going forward. But what I used to think about when I heard the Cranberries was one of my first girlfriends in high school, we made out to that first record. What did I say it was called? Um, Everyone else is doing it. Why can't we? Like we made out to that record like so many times. And all I think about is like, you know, super weird, like insecure high school love that's like all awkward and like kind of awesome. You know, and like all of the weird petty things that you get into arguments about.
0: Good times. Good times.
1: Yeah, good times. One that I didn't sell is uh, De La Soul uh, had a repress of De La Soul is Dead a couple years ago.
0: Yeah, well, why would you sell that? They're one of your bands, right?
1: I would never sell that record. But it's selling for like well over $200 right now. And every once in a while, I'm like,
0: do I need that?
1: And then I decide that I do. I'm on kind of like a disco funk soul kick right now. And I'm like reading about it. It's so awesome.
0: That's what you're buying now. Well, yeah, it's like they're, you know, that's the
1: Chic organization. So like, yeah, you know who they are.
0: I do, but yeah. All right, here, go ahead. Tell, tell who it is.
1: Yeah, it's so the, they are two musicians who produced an exorbitant amount of hit soul and funk records in the 70s and 80s. It's safe to say that everyone knows who Chic is through, their song, through songs like Good Times and Le Freak, but they were producing all kinds of of soul and funk acts throughout those eras. And they are just incredible songwriters. And I, I, I love them. I mean, I am like, I'm listening to Sister Sledge's We Are Family like so much right now. But I'm also listening to people like McFadden and Whitehead, a band called Change. I'm super, super, super into Earth, Wind & Fire right now. I don't think that they put out a single bad record in the 70s. And also, what's nice about it, and this is not going to last forever, is at this moment... Those records are not expensive.
0: In really good condition. Well, after this podcast, it's gonna blow up. So enjoy it while it lasts. Oh, records that paid for the ramp, right? Yeah, no, that's that was that was the whole that was the whole thing. I mean it's it's, it's a bit of a it, well, the, the the show is called Feel Free to Deviate. Sometimes we deviate from the topic. Before we were talking about projects and stuff. We were talking about grad school and what it meant to be an artist, but like you, you just spent, I don't know, twenty, twenty-five minutes talking about all your projects, how you're thinking about your projects, what you're doing with your projects. And, you know, it sounds like that you are a successful artist, successful in that you have actually become an artist. You think about things in the way artists think about things. You do things in the way that artists do things. Are you making any money? No, not as an artist. And I can pay, you know, we can pay our mortgage and eat food. But that's the jobby job. That's what I'm talking about.
1: Yeah, I think that, like, I want to I want to dial into that for a second because... Like, and this goes back to the first thing I, that we were talking about. Like, success. I don't know. Like, I don't. Th- I think about it again. It's like in terms of like, do I have what I need to do what I want to do? Right? Yes. I can. We are able to pay our mortgage. Yeah. There's food on the table. Yes. I get to hang out with my family. Yes. I get to hang out with my friends. Yes. I get to make artwork. Yes. I get to um
0: design skateboards with your kid.
1: Yeah. I get to like you know do grip tape jobs with my kid and like. And I know this is where the money comes from, but like I get to work for an organization that is doing good things in the world. Um, It's creating social change in the immediate term. Whereas with teaching, it's like, you know, I like, don't get me wrong. Like I enjoyed my time teaching, but teaching and social change is a long game. In my experience, it's like the like social change happens, but it happens progressively and it happens over time for many years when the students, you know, leave your classroom. And that's even that's if you have an effect. There was a lot of reasons that motivated my move from teaching to, to working in the nonprofit field, but one of the biggest ones was the world is kind of a shitty place and people suffer in that world. I want to do something and support work that is going to see social change in the more immediate term. And that happens. I work with you know over 150 youth build programs that are changing young people's lives every year. That's huge for me. I sleep really well at night. I really, I want to help people. And I feel like that the the time that I put in at my job is helping make a difference in people's lives. And it's young people, like the young people who have all the potential in them to make this world a better place. It feels, it's, it's awesome.
0: I think that we're probably done then. I think one
1: other thing, because There was the other, (laughs) I don't know why, how I get going on these things, but the other thing that like, you know, kind of keeps me, keeps me happy and, you know, feeling productive and able to do the things that I want to do is like taking the knowledge that I've learned, um, and gained from working at YouthBuild and applying that to kind of a small scale, um, small scale nonprofit service in my community. I live in Billerica, Massachusetts. Uh, At one point, um, as the pandemic started to settle down a little bit last spring, um, I just walked into the rec department in Billerica and said, do you guys do any skateboarding classes? And they said, no. And I was like, well, you know, if you're interested in doing something like that, I would love to, you know, be a part of that. And the guy looked at me like I had seven heads. He was like, "What? why? He said, no one has ever walked through this door. With anything other than a complaint.
0: Oh, oh yeah, I can imagine.
1: I taught a class um, once a, what was a, they were just test driving it once a month last summer. And then I teamed up with a friend of mine and we partnered up and did another once a week version for six weeks in the fall. Both times the classes were filled. Both times we had more girls than we did guys.
0: Yeah, man, that's awesome.
1: And it was awesome. Like Lex got to be a TA for a couple of the classes because she had already done the first one. It's like now finally after like, you know, these two things have like kind of been with me throughout my life. You know, it's like they're like, I'm very happy with the way that I'm doing them, you know, happy with the way that I'm making artwork. I'm happy with the way that I'm skateboarding and being able to serve my community and also be able to serve the national community with youth build. And I think success, maybe, but I think more through my work, I'm able to have the resources to do the things that I want to do, both professionally and personally. And that that makes that makes me happy.
0: Sounds fulfilling.
1: Yeah, that's that's the deal. You know, I just wanna just wanna be able to do the stuff that I need that I need to. And I'm never gonna be a millionaire, but I have what I need and And also what comes with that is thankfully, like the org that I work for has really, 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 really awesome health insurance.
0: That's very helpful.
1: Yeah. It helps me to continue to do one of the main things that I want to keep doing, which is um, skateboard.
0: (laughs) Sorry, doctor. How do I get new hands? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm just going to say goodbye. Thank you very much for being on. It sounds sounds to me like you, you got a pretty good thing going on. And I think that people who listen to this will benefit from hearing it. Most of the people that I talked to thus far have been arts people, and everyone's got a different story. Everyone's got a different way to look at art, create art, live with art, and make their living. And I I think that the way you're going about doing it is pretty good, and it sounds like you got a good thing going on. I hope it continues.
1: Thanks, man. I appreciate it. It has been awesome. Yeah, I have to go to sleep. Oh, oh, yeah. It's got to be late for you now.
0: It's like 11, right? It is 11. Good night, sweet prince. Good night. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'll talk to you soon, man. I'll talk to you later. Bye. That was Scott. I've always marveled at his energy. If only we could tap into it somehow. I guess I said this in the episode, but I admire the way he digs in and keeps trying over and over again until it is awesome and he never seems to get tired. I've seen it happen over and over again. You should check out the results for yourself at scottpatrickweener.com. And check him out on Instagram at spwiener underscore studio. Links are in the show notes. If you want to know more about YouthBuild, feel free to visit youthbuild.org for the lowdown. Thanks for being on the show, Scott. I know that you're disappointed that I cut out all the talk about Ahsoka Tano, but that's just how it goes sometimes. Check me out on Instagram at feelfreetodeviate or go to feelfreetodeviate.com for the full experience. It would be cool if you could like and follow my stuff on Insta and maybe tell a friend or 12. There's also a donation page on the website if you're feeling generous. The next episode coming up in two weeks might be Jason or Kay or Katrine or Katya. Maybe someone else. Sometimes surprises are good. At any rate, you will be just as surprised as me. Thanks for your time. I appreciate every second of it. Until next time, steer clear of catastrophes